Welcome to the Raptors Reasonablists. Blake Murphy, my normal co-host. This is Eric Corrine coming to you. Blake Murphy has been locked away, away from a computer. He is not being allowed anywhere near work, and that means you will only get two stories from him at theathletic.com this week, not the usual seven. Uh, in his place, we have the the beat writer, the, the OG beat writer of the Toronto Raptors from the Toronto Star and the author of We the North, 25 Years of the Toronto Raptors in bookstores on October 20th. On available for pre-order on Chapters Indigo in Canada, Amazon, the United States. It's Doug Smith. Doug, how you doing? I'm okay. Do I need to be reasonable, unreasonable, quasi You can be whatever. We've had was on here, so... Uh, so reasonable is out the door. Yeah, you don't need to fit the brand. You you okay. can just be yourself. <laughs> and and uh, it's my job to keep things going uh, in terms of the branding of this podcast. I could do um, well being myself. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's loosely defined. Uh, so, uh, big news! I think it was the anniversary of the of the championship when we when the pre orders were available for your book again at Chapters Indigo in Canada, uh, Amazon United States. Uh, that became available. You've written books before, most notably Airborne: The Story of Damon Stoudemire. Uh, how was this experience, uh, new or different from, uh, times you've, uh, you've been involved before? This one was hard because it encompassed such a large subject matter. 25 years, a long time. You think it's not, but man, a lot of stuff's got, a lot of water's gone under the bridge since 1995 and trying to remember and find out what was, what's still relevant and to find some sort of theme to cover 25 years. That was, it wasn't sitting down like we do, Eric, and write a story. Talk to a guy, yeah. get their coach, write a story. That that wasn't it at all. Uh, I was going to ask about that. That was sort of my next question, um, and, and and maybe a few more about that. I mean, you've been around for all of this, so you have institutional memory uh, of most of it, and of course, naturally, you've forgotten some of it. <laughs> a lot of I, I've forgotten it, some of it, and I've only been doing it, I think, for half the time that you have. Um, how much do you feel like that the research shaped the book and, and how much did, uh, the interviewing shape what the book turned out to be? Like, did you, how much did you go in with an idea and you just sought out to execute that idea? And how much did the, the new research you did shape what the book wound up being? It, it was far more the former, more of, uh, what do I remember of the first couple years? What do I remember of the first series of coaches, for instance, and then, researching to affirm what I remembered kind of thing. There's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more me and I in this book than I ever thought there would be because that yeah. seemed to be the way it evolved. What, what did I remember of the shotgun clause? What did I remember of the Damon Stoudemire years? What did I remember of, you know, Daryl Walker, Butch Carter, Kevin O'Neill, those kind of early coaches. Like it turned into a lot more, uh, memoirish than I had than yeah. I had anticipated, but I think it worked out. I sure hope it did, but they they seem to think that was the best way to approach it rather than to consider new research and new interviews for a twenty five year period. I think uh I mean that would 
the the blog work you've done over you know the last fifteen years or however long it's been would probably prepare you for that. But I mean, how different was that for a you know a text, basically something that's <laughs> you know going to be it in would... bookstores and it's going to hopefully be. Uh, if not the definitive, a definitive account uh, of the first twenty-five years of the franchise. It was it was really hard, Eric, and it, our our, our friend uh, Alex Wong helped me out greatly with this sort of drawing stories out by having conversations that allowed me to remember things that I may not have remembered, um, and instances, little specifics, kind of thing like that. That you know, once you went back and looked at them, yeah, yeah, of course I remember that. That happened. Um. But it was as a writing process for a guy who's been a beat reporter for a long time, it was entirely foreign because there's a lot of I in there and there's not a lot of I in stuff that I write in the newspaper. The blog is absolutely conversational and this happened and this little snippet of information. But that's a, you know, that's 800 or 1,000 words a day. That's not 68,000 words over 25 chapters. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, uh, just personally, and certainly I, I've gotten used to writing in the first person a bit more, and especially as I've gone to The Athletic from the National Post. But, you know, the first day of journalism school, if not the first day, then then one of the first days, they sort of beat the eye out of you. And then, then, then they slowly allow you, you know, you, you learn the rules to be able to break them and, and you see what it best fits the story. But, you know, that much would seem overwhelming to me and uh and i know that you're sort of i i mean i i think it's fair to say you're loath to make yourself the center of the story and and i don't think that's the case I, i'm guessing the raptors are the center of the story here yeah, but yeah. but it's a different it's a different sort of way to approach the team for sure it really is and it's a lot of a lot of personal stories and a lot of you know this guy said this to me this day and this is yeah. why it this is why it's relevant but you know the other part obviously was trying to find some sort of common theme to carry through 25 chapters, which cover 25 years. And that's not a, it's, it's chronological in the way they're laid out, but it's certainly not one chapter per year kind of thing. So finding some common theme to carry all the way through it was extraordinarily difficult and was the hardest part of the process. But because once you start telling the stories, you're just telling the stories, trying to figure out how they, how they go in order and how they carry through from 1995 to 2020. You know, that, that's, that was the, the real challenge of it. So where did you land with that theme? I, I mean, I don't want you to give away the whole book here. Obviously people should pre-order it and order it when it, or, or buy it in bookstores. If, if, if we're ever if allowed to go open, back yeah, in those, there are <laughs> um, but, but, you know, looking back on the writing process and, and looking at the finished copy, like, what do you think is the through line there? I think the, the through line is the evolution of the sport and society and the game of basketball in Canada through the prism of the Raptors. How in 1995, no one had any idea what basketball was. It was this, it was this sort of foreign thing where they had, well, they played music when they played the game and they had dancers and they had noise things going on all the time. And no one in Canada had ever seen that before. And to evolve from that point, with basically, at that point, a Canadian crowd, which was a lot of middle-aged white people, to 2019 championship night, where the hundreds of thousands of people in Jurassic Parks from coast to coast mirrored Canada. Young, old, uh, male, female, binary, uh, every possible 
aspect of society in that time was involved in the celebration of the championship. And to see the Raptors and the game come from 1995 to 2019 was sort of seeing where Canada has sort of come. And it's the evolution of people, society, and the sport where it's now, I would suggest, as popular in urban centers as hockey across the country. And no one thought that possible. And how did it get there? And who shaped it to get it, that, get it to that point? That's sort of the theme we tried to get. Now, that sounds very, very deep. So it's not quite that because it's <laughs> far more conversational than that. But that's the kind of stories we tried to tell all the way through it. So you didn't write a sociology textbook or anything? I did not. I haven't even read a sociology <laughs> textbook, let alone write one. Um, how much, for you, how much room is there to learn new stuff when you've been around it for so long? Was it, Can you think of anything that, was it stuff all that you were relearning or were there like, new things from talking to the people that you did talk to. They're like, Oh, that, uh, I mean, that seems brand new to me. There was some, there were, was much more relearning stuff that I, re- I vaguely remembered and confirming what I thought that I knew. Yeah. But there was, there was a couple snippets of new stuff. There was a, you know, the, the chapter on the final day of game six in Oakland starts with a brand new thing. I didn't know that they had this rather contentious team meeting the morning of game six in the hotel, Ooh. in the hotel in San Francisco that, it wasn't confrontational, but it was a hard meeting. I was told. Yeah. So I didn't know. No one. I didn't know that. But so that so, allowed yeah. me get into get into that day as the final chapter of the book. But you know, it was more relearning what relearning what I knew. There is not a lot of new snippet. There's not a lot of news in it. But there's a lot of things that people go, "Oh yeah, I remember that. That's what they thought. That's what happened." And there you go. Um, to sort of touch on that, because like, obviously they weren't volunteering that information, uh, as they were, you know, either in the midst of being soaked in champagne or about to be soaked in champagne. Uh, there's obviously the further away you get from something, there tends to be more freedom to talk about it, uh, from the sources involved. Uh, I'm curious if there was a lot like that for you. And also, were there any, um, people you talked to who were sort of, sort of like so-so quotes at the time, blah quotes, like I don't really need to talk to this person that much, or maybe they'll give me something on background, who ended up being like a brand, not a brand new person, but ended up opening up more than you thought. And like the, the person I always think of in my career is, I mean, I think we see a lot of young guys go from young and scared, not scared, but shy to uh, more forthcoming. But when I talked to Terrence Ross for a story on on the Kyle Lowry trade, or, or the Kyle Lowry, or, or, or the, the Rudy Gay trade that sort of set the We the North era in motion, uh, Terrence Ross was one of the worst quotes <laughs> in the league, yeah, I think, absolutely. in the first absolutely. two years. And by the time I talked to him when he was a member of the Magic, he was like, cursing and going on in detail and uh it was like a whole new person so i was wondering if there's anybody you sort of uh you know you chatted to for this book that had had gone through such a transformation or was just you know a lot more outgoing than than you thought i'm not sure there's like one or two specific guys but like our our friend alvin williams for instance yeah when alvin played he wouldn't say crap if he had a mouthful now you can't shut him up and it, it is that sort of distance that allows people to feel they can speak more freely and then being away from the team. There's a couple of guys who have said, I can't talk about that. I still got to play with that guy. 
yeah. that kind of that kind of thing you see still a little bit. But as for like one or two players or people, there, there really wasn't yeah. anybody who got outside themselves. A lot of people I, said things, you know, you preface most, most questions with this by saying, hey, I'm doing this book instead of saying, hey, this is going to be in a paper tomorrow. Yeah. And you're going to have to answer for it to a bunch of people tomorrow if you say it. I think people realize that the distance between the newspapers and the, the websites and the daily coverage is so vast to something that's a book in a bookstore that's not coming out until next October, that they feel a little bit more free to speak and confirm stuff that you thought you knew or that, that you had heard a little bit of and will just allow you to write it because you now know it's confirmed and true by a guy who was there. Yeah, it's quite understandable that guys, and and as a journalist, I wish it weren't so, but <laughs> guys don't want to become part of the daily right. news cycle because then you're, you know, swarmed by reporters and asked the same questions a few times. It's funny you mentioned that about Alvin Williams, a guy who I can think becoming like that after his career is Norm Powell. Uh, oh, yeah, he almost absolutely. He almost takes pride in saying he's never going to tell us the truth. Well, but it's clear that he has, like... He's a pretty smart with it guy, and he has a lot to say, but he just Absolutely. won't say it. So I wonder if if he sort of, you know, not exactly the same type of personality, but you could see him in the future being a pretty verbose guy, a pretty, you know, somebody who can reflect pretty well on things. Yeah, I think Eric, I think you were standing with us that day, that day at OVO where Norm came over to start a scrum and said, I'm never going to say anything interesting. <laughs> <laughs> because he knew that saying something interesting would make it interesting tomorrow and he'd have to do it all over again. There are so many players like that in, in I think, all of pro sports yeah. who are savvy enough to know that, hey, if I tell them the absolute truth, I'm going to have to tell the absolute truth again tomorrow and this thing's going to carry on for two days and I don't want, to want, I don't want that hassle. Yeah. In, in, I, a, in a book process, people feel more free because they're not going to have to answer to it immediately. I'm just going to start telling people I'm writing a book. When Absolutely. Hopefully they, hopefully they don't ask for details. The first chapter is <laughs> out tomorrow on the website, but I'm going to write a book. <laughs> how, much, how did you find the push and pull between writing about the recent stuff, which is obviously, you know, the, the peak and the, the thing that probably has the most, uh, at least casual fan interest, so the most widespread interest, Versus the stuff from the esoteric past, which will be interesting to diehards. And, you know, there are stories there, I'm sure, that, you know, don't even compute with today's NBA and the, what we hear of it and, and what they talk about uh, and what players regularly talk about, but is also a very, you know, real part of the franchise history, a franchise that was, you know, more or less a laughing stock for the oh. first 17 years of the franchise. I would say more, far more than less. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you're right. You can't, you really couldn't, and you, you can't laser focus on last year and you can't even laser focus on the last five years because there are 20 years prior to that, that sort of shaped where, and was part of the process to where they got to. And I think that trying to balance the old stuff that wasn't good as the basis for what was what became good is kind of hard, and I'm not, I don't know whether we did it well enough, whether it got done well enough, and I guess the readers will determine that. But you can't have four chapters on Kawhi Leonard Kawhi, and, and Kyle Lowry without having some on Chris Bosh and Damon Stoudemire and Butch Carter. You, you can't you can't do that until the story of the Raptors over 25 years. 
So that that was <laughs> it is certainly not a laser focused book on the 2018-2019 season. Yeah. Uh, on that note, uh, something I found difficult over sort of during quarantine as, as we've sort of forced, you, you wrote a piece on, on the Rudy Gay trade, I, oh. I believe this past yeah. weekend, um, you know, Blake and I have been writing lots of stuff looking back, uh, just for the lack of new content. Uh, I mean, it's sort Absolutely. of a, a necessary thing to go to. And something I've found difficult is writing about the Rob Babcock era, not only because, you know, how unsuccessful it is, but, you know, Babcock obviously passed away a few years ago, and it starts to feel odd to to write these, you know, the Vince Carter trade was bad. We know that. Right. But the more you write about it, the more it feels like piling on. So yeah. have you, how have you found, I'm just curious for my own purposes, how have you found writing about Babcock? Who, by all it, accounts, was like a very lovely man. So. I find it absolutely imp- almost impossible to do because, like you said, Eric, he is a very he it was a very very nice man, genuinely a good man who tried his best, failed miserably at the one thing people were, will remember him for, the Vince Carter trade. But there, are, I don't. It was hard to. It's hard to find. You know this because you've talked to Sam Mitchell and other people. It's hard to find people in the NBA family who have a bad thing to say about Rob. Because he was generally well respected and gen- genuinely loved by a lot of people in the league, and it is piling on because, yes, he blew the Carter trade. There's no question about it. That's it, it, that's a given. But he also signed Jose Calderon, and people don't ever mention that in the same context because yeah. it's not titillating and it's not Vince Carter for one. But he's like every every general manager in every sport. You take your shot. Sometimes you blow it. Sometimes you hit a home run. And at the end of the day, you stay true to yourself. You, you treat people with respect. You treat them well. And you suffer the slings when you have to. Then then anything past that, I do think, is piling on a lot. Uh, Blake recently ranked all 100 Raptors free agent signings. Blake's crazy. Season. Blake's yeah. crazy. Can we just get that right out there? I'm sure he's going to listen to this. He's nuts. That's crazy. <laughs> I'm not sure he's a, Blake hates listening to uh, uh, podcasts, and I think specifically his own podcast. <laughs> so, so he might not listen to well, it. Someone will tell uh, him, but he's nuts for ranking 100 free agent signings. Yeah, um, but he did rank the signing of Jose Calderon by Rob Babcock as the number one Raptors free agent signing in uh, franchise history just by a, a value uh, perspective in terms of what they spent and and what they got back. And if you want to read about that at The Athletic, go to theathletic.com slash we the six. That's the number six, not S-I-X, not six I-X, not S-I-X-X as in Nikki Six from, uh, <laughs> from uh, what's the band I'm looking, Motley Crue. No, it's just we the number six. Um, that was, and that'll I- get you a discount and a free trial. That was for you, Doug, the Motley Crue reference. I like that because, you know, me and the crew. <laughs> I could certainly uh, see Jose being the number one. Absolutely. I don't have any, I don't think anybody would dispute that. He, what he, he did, what he, the player he became, and what he netted them, and what, it, what the process began when he got traded was, was the, he was, that was absolutely number one. Yeah. It certainly they, uh, wasn't Jason Capono. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole section of the Raptors trying to fix their small forward pro- uh, problems uh, between <laughs> him, Damari Carroll, Landry Fields. This pandemic can't go on long enough to get through that <laughs> series. Yeah, um, 
None of those sightings worked out. Uh, I think the long lesson is that anybody who's in charge of the Raptors in the next, you know, 25 years, if you're going to try and get a small forward, either draft him or trade him or trade for him. You (laughs) you do not want to give them money on the open market. Uh, But free agency is really hard. It does not work out for most teams that are not signing max players. That's just sort of the reality (laughs) of it. That's kind of the reality of the world, yes. Uh, wrapping up on, on the book uh, a little bit, is there anybody you wanted to chat to who you just couldn't? Uh, well, <laughs> probably Rob Babcock be, be yeah. one. But no, other than that, I got a lot of. There's, a, I talked to a lot of people. There's not a lot of quotes in the book, but yeah. I talked to an awful lot of people to get information that got in the book, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, no uh, one said no. Yeah. Someone well, said, uh, you know, a couple, couple guys said, I'd rather not go right to that point, but I'll tell you this, but no one said, no, I'm not talking about anything. Yeah. And, and, uh, we had, uh, Euron Weitzman who wrote about, uh, the, his book, which I'm forgetting the name of now, the, but it's about the process and, and the Sixers. And, uh, they took a different view with the book as you <laughs> might not be surprised to find that he he uh he ended up i mean based on that the type of book that ends up being you can you can imagine how that might be helpful in certain cases and allow you to be more honest in certain places but man trying to uh, as you say write seventy thousand words with with uh, some key figures not even offering you a hint at what was going on behind the scenes seems Seems like yeah, murder to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yes, exactly right. Um, and, and last, before we get on to the forward of the book, did did the book change your mind about anything you thought about the Raptors, or did it just sort of confirm, you know, what you've basically seen throughout your tenure covering the team? It basically confirmed what I thought, that a lot of good people tried their best and a lot of people's best wasn't good enough, and eventually yeah. it worked. So I think I'd seen that all through the years, that, that even, you know, back... Like we just talked about the, the Babcocks, the Isaiahs, the the Brian Colangelos. You know, most of those people generally try their best to make this work, and it just didn't for one reason. And most of almost, if you go back, I presume that hundred that list of hundred free agents that, that Blake signed, that Blake wrote about, each one of them because was probably defensible at the moment, and. I think what I found and what people will find is that, you know, people take their best shot and they don't do things with, with malice. They try to do their best. And sometimes the best isn't good enough and you move on. And every now and then you get to 2018, 2019 when it clicks and yep. that's rare. And I think yeah, that's it's what fu- people, need, people need to realize that it doesn't happen all the time. Yeah, it's funny uh, you mentioned that, uh, and like obviously everybody, nobody that we know of, except for maybe certain Knicks employees, are trying to tank their franchises. Um, but um, you mentioned how like people are trying their best, and uh, I went back and looked at some of the worst signings according to Blake's list, and you know I've been around. I was either like sort of a diehard fan or, or covering the team, and I tried to go back to what the thinking was. And, and I think, if I remember correctly, Hito was the worst signing. Uh, and, you know, looking back, that was a flawed decision. If you're going to have Jose Calderon and Andrea Bargnani as your pick and roll, your 1-5 pick and roll defense, you need, you know, defenders across right. the board to sort of be able to help out. 
But also that year, but the year before, they ranked 22nd in offense and 22nd in defense. And, you know, you sort of have to try and improve where the opportunity is available and, and hopefully it meshes. And uh, like, uh, you know, it was the wrong move. There's no coloring. There, there's no covering for that in hindsight. And, you know, maybe it would have been more prudent to actively go after Sean Marion to try and reside Sean Marion. But you can get where they're coming from at the very least. There's there's no move in Raptors history if you try and place yourself in in the time that is like, where did this come from? Why did this happen? I, I think it's it's pretty explanatory. Now, you know, I've talked to Richard Petty a bit for a story I'm about to mention, but this was a rookie franchise too. You know, Larry Tadenbaum, uh, Richard Petty, when he became president, they, they were all doing this for more or less the first time. And nobody aces their first, or very few people ace their first assignments. It's, no, exactly. it's not easy. The only thing that, the only one that absolutely makes no sense and wasn't done with malice, but was, you know, Rafael Arujo. Yeah. That yeah. was like, that was an absolute error in judgment and, oh, and commission. There's no question about it. That's there's no defending that one, but yeah, and I think I think if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that happened. Uh, Babcock had just been hired, but he was not super right. involved in the draft process, so that left it to Jack McCloskey, I, I believe, to be the head of that process. Um, so that that was sort of a timing issue as much as anything, and and you know, a more mature franchise probably deals with that better, but they were not more mature. Right, exactly, and they did their the the leadership that put Jack McCloskey nominally in charge was relatively new as well. So yeah. it had it didn't have the the cachet to say no, you're not doing this because that's stupid. When yeah. it when when it when they should have. So the foreword of Doug's book is written by Vince Carter, and over at the Athletic, I wrote about Vince Carter on Monday. Uh, again, theathletic.com slash we the six, number six, read all your content. Uh, you like that plug, Doug? I like that a lot, actually. It's just very effortless. Um, <laughs> very, very, uh, gener- or germane to the whole process. Uh, and I wrote about, uh, Vince from the perspective of longtime fans who have trouble, if not forgiving him, then forgetting what he did or, or overlooking it or getting past it and sort of remembering the many good times he brought. And, you know, this is somebody whose exit and last few years in Toronto have come under scrutiny again and again. And judging by the comments on my piece, like uh, <laughs> as many people as tell me, uh, you know, why are we still talking about it? The Raptors won the championship. There are more people who want to debate Vince Carter's exit. Uh, so it is not a, uh, a topic that goes away. So before we get into the specifics of that, uh, why have Vince Carter write the foreword of your book when uh, there are so many good candidates who are, let's say, <laughs> less de- less divisive than, than Vince? Well, let's say I didn't, in part I didn't think Kyle or Kawhi would do it. <laughs> I would so, pay. I would pay an extra ten dollars to read Kawhi's uh, <laughs> forward to your book. Yeah. No. The, re- the reason we asked him is you, you can't tell the story. He's so central to the history of the game and the team in Canada. You can't tell the story without him heavily involved in it. And he would. You know. Obviously, it's a name that people will recognize and maybe buy because of, or not buy because of. I don't know, but. 
he was so central to what the team was and is that I think we wanted his words in there. And it's pretty good. It, it goes into some things about his departure and his arrival. But he is, he's, so, he's the central figure to all of the Raptors in 25 years. He's the guy. And you can't, I think it'd be a disservice if he wasn't involved in some heavy way. Yeah. Um, not to relitigate it too much, but I mean, how much do you empathize, not empathize, but how much do you understand people who don't want to see his number go up or certainly don't want him achieving the same level of honor as a guy like Kyle uh, who, by the way, has not made life easy on the Raptors in his own way several times, uh, but has stuck, you know, has obviously been with the Raptors, is, is you know, the greatest Raptor of all time, all of that. But but do you understand the the sort of response to him that is negative, or, or, or at least isn't willing to, uh, to quite move on from the, that exit? I do. I think it's a little bit misguided and misplaced, but I, I can understand it at some level. I do think that part of the reason it, it existed for so long was that the team was so bad for so many years right after. And that if his departure had been followed by two years of badness, it would have been easier to forgive him or forget about that 20 game period, but it was seven or eight years and it let it festered with people for a very, very long time because he was still out there being Vince and his departure was still a sore point that was never, they never got, they didn't get over it for a long time. Like they were yeah. bad for a lot of years after he left. And that I can see, but I do think a lot of people misplace the anger for why it had to happen. They place it solely on him without looking at management and ownership and what it didn't do. And I think that's the last part of it. He played for what? Three general managers and four head coaches. <laughs> yeah. you know, it was, it wasn't the most stable of atmospheres and your piece was excellent. And Richard Petty made very good points about, he was the first guy to get special treatment for his mom, for himself, with his security. Like, and there was, but frankly, following him around, it was necessary. Yeah. It was, it was, he was a supernova. He was globally famous. And the security and the parking spot for his mom, hell, if players don't have, they have family rooms. They, they, they kowtow to players now. It makes a parking spot for Vince's mom look like nothing. <laughs> Looks like a, like, a, like, a, like a, not even a backstage pass. But then, <laughs> but at that point, it was new and it was a, it was a, a laser point that was missed. I think people misread it or put too much emphasis on it. Do you think, I mean, you know, Vince, I'm not going to say you guys are, you know, best friends, but you know, I'm, you know, yeah. probably better, better than most. Do you think he fully sort of understands what happened at the end of the tenure and takes his share of the responsibility? Not and, enough. Uh, no, I don't think he yeah. takes enough responsibility for that, that 24 game period. I do think he rationalizes maybe a little bit too much. But yeah. I think that's understandable. I, I probably, I would presume every, any athlete in the same situation probably would. There's not a lot of, I was wrong in any pro athlete. And I don't think that's unusual. I, I, I wish, like, it, like you wrote in your piece, if he had said 
two years after his departure, look, we were both wrong. It would have hastened any kind of reconciliation. But he didn't, and that's not the way he is. And okay, um, in a perfect world, that would have happened, but we don't live in a perfect world. And he's not a flaw. He's a flawed man, like his bosses and his colleagues were flawed at the time. So yeah. there's, there's more of a sharing of responsibility than I think people are willing to admit. Uh, before we go, I, I guess we should talk about, you know, the 2019, 20, <laughs> 2020 Toronto Raptors. As we record this, we are 22 minutes away from teams being able to sign actual players. Oh my goodness. Oh boy. Eric Moreland, where are you at? Um, as we, uh, as we know, uh, yesterday, two players, have opted out from playing in the return to uh, play, you know, sort of what's being proposed, you know, until it actually happens. Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly. what I'm going to believe it's happening. But uh, Davis Bertans has, of the Wizards will not play, more or less to protect himself uh, for free agency. And Trevor Ariza of, uh, I can never remember, he's on Portland, Portland now, Portland I believe. Now, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah. He, go, he goes from Western Conference Fridge team to Western Conference Fridge team. Uh, I think he's been on Phoenix, Portland, and Sacramento <laughs> within the last year. So my apologies to Mr. Ariza, but he has uh, family issues that will keep him from participating. Where are you on the league actually starting play on July 30th, given not only that, but obviously... And I do not believe you, to, to quote our good friend, Mr. Mitchell, have a medical degree in your back pocket uh, or have become a professor of immunology or anything like that. Where are you actually on, on the league being able to start on July 30th and being able to crown a champion? How, how I, I mean, how do you see it? I think it will start. I think, it, I think they will crown a champion. I think it's going to be fraught with peril, and I think it's going to be a delicate balancing act from July 7th when teams start arriving till October when they depart. But I do think they've done absolutely as much as they possibly can to to distance themselves not only from the world, but from Florida. And I (laughs) I understand that they're in Florida, but they're really not in Florida. And I think they've taken every possible precaution, and if it doesn't work, it's not because of any errors of omission. They thought of basically everything and we'll deal with whatever comes up when it does and stuff will come up. We know this. It's not... Yeah. Something's going to happen for sure. Someone's going to test positive. Someone's going to get cranky. Someone's going to leave. Some team's going to say, ah, we're playing our bench guys the last four games for the seeding games because we don't have no chance. They'll tank. (laughs) They can tank seeding games if that's possible. But I do think they'll start, I do think they'll finish, and I do think it'll be very, very weird. And I do think I'll love watching it from the comfort of my house. <laughs> I think that should be the NBA, the, the slogan for the rest of the year. We're in Florida, but not really. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> they can't be in Florida. They could be in whatever the biosphere bubble, campus, whatever they want to call it, but they're not in Florida. And I think yeah. that's what people need to realize, that Florida's a cesspool. And you look at the test numbers in the last week, it's crazy. It's like these things are just starting. But the way the NBA, the length the NBA has gone to distance itself even from Florida while being in Florida give me, gives me rise to think this will work. Um, we're a few weeks away from, from when they announced the return to play plan. Do you like the format? I would have liked the World Cup format better. Uh, I think 22 is probably a bit too many teams. 
Mm-hmm. I would have I would have gone to twenty with the with the, the four divisions of five, play eight games, and then go on from there. But I certainly couldn't see them taking any more than twenty two teams there. This it's, it's unworkable time wise and numbers wise. I would have if they were going to go to this, I would have gone to eighteen or maybe nineteen. But the World Cup format would have been my my preference. I'm going to assume there's no Wizards Suns game, uh, but. Maybe there will be, oh, and God. Uh, I think somebody should have to write like a two, th- like a two to three thousand word feature on that game, especially <laughs> if it, especially if it's near the end of the uh, the schedule uh, and has absolutely no bearing on what's to come. That'll be uh, the summer that, league. That'll be the summer league we never had. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you, based on how it's. And this is new ground for all of us. Do you see any type of team, uh, and we can talk about the Raptors for a moment, that might benefit from the way they're heading back into the season? Or is it just too foreign to really <laughs> hazard a guess? I, I, I think it's, it's probably too foreign to hazard a guess, but yeah. that's what we do. So yes. Yeah. I, think, <laughs> I, I think a veteran team of guys who, are, who get along are going to be overwhelmingly more well more able to deal with this it's gonna this is a hundred day road trip you will come to hate each other people will come to hate each other like with the white hot intensity of a thousand suns being locked away for a hundred days with people even in the nba in the regular season you can get away from your teammates you can get away from your team you can't get away from each other now so i do think chemistry is going to be a big thing and maturity of the players and I don't know what team that would benefit. Maybe it benefits the Raptors. They seem to like each other, but they also <laughs> they are also able to get away from each other when they have to. You think yeah. Norm Powell and Rondé Hollis Jefferson are going to spend a hundred days <laughs> together and come out hugging? It ain't going to happen. Uh, I thought Nick Nurse uh, put it well when we spoke to him. Uh, who who knows when we spoke to him? I can't remember. <laughs> but but he basically said, you know, we get nervous about our families and and nervous about the logistics of a two week Western Conference road trip. So yeah. you know the the teams that are you know the Raptors are already in Florida and and the team the rest of the team or, or everybody's sort of engaging in some sort of training camp process uh, starting. I believe June thirtieth is is the date, so a week today. Um, but the teams that make it to the end—that's three months. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a crazy. lot of time. Um, finally, uh, last issue, uh, and, and by no means the least important. Uh, obviously, there was the player group uh, led by Kyrie Irving and Avery Bradley. That's uh, trying to make sure, even if they do play the opportunities to give a voice to the protests that were and still are happening, uh, although not as notably uh, because just because they have faded from our, uh, you know, very short-term memory, which is sort of the fear of a lot of people who want to see uh, the the protests continue to, to make headlines. The NBA typically has been among the best leagues in allowing their players to have a voice, uh, especially under the the reign of uh, the reign is the wrong word under <laughs> you know Adam Silver's tenure. Uh, what do you th- or not necessarily? What do you think? But how amenable 
do you think silver and the NBA will be to what the players want to do? And there's often, I say that like, there's obviously a wide range of opinions of what they want to do. And some will, you know, not come across as, you know, PC politically correct. And it will rub some fans the wrong way. How, how much leeway do you see these, uh, the commissioner who theoretically represents the owners, uh, allowing the players to be. I think they, they will let them do pretty much whatever they want. And I think that they should. And I think the players are smart enough and socially aware enough not to disabuse, not to abuse that responsibility. I think they'll, they'll use it well. I think it's good that in, in some ways it's good that they will have far greater reach of media during this time because they will all be in one place and every reporter in North America will be watching them very closely at the start, which will give them a greater audience, I think, as a collective. And I think the league will let them do whatever it is they want to do. And if something seems to go over a line, there will be discussions about it rather than a heavy hammer come down on it. Uh, absolutely. And and there were a few pieces this week uh, with Wayne Embry, who yeah. uh, was all was playing back uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and, and you saw him talking about uh, whether, you know, they had questions, should they play or shouldn't they play? And, and he was on the side of them playing and he doesn't regret that decision. And I, I think the reason this has a chance of, of happening um, beyond the medical concerns, I'm talking specifically about the protest, is because this... Is a, this is going to be a huge platform. I, I mean, more of the sports will be going on, so it won't be like the NBA starting to play now, you know, while yeah. nothing else is happening. But there's going to be a huge hunger for for basketball and pro sports. And, and if the players and, and the owners can get on the same page, which, you know, the NBA, again, has been pretty good with in the recent past, uh, this is a platform that they, you know, that in op-ed in the New York Times that a, uh, you know, a statement on an Instagram feed just doesn't get across right. quite the same way. And, yeah. and it allows more voices, I think. No, I think you're exactly right. And it allows more voices to reach a greater crowd. Yeah. And I think that's that's what I always have thought about athletes and their, their social responsibility. They reach people that normal people don't. And I think that's hugely important in this day and age. They will reach it a group of young people who they can help shape. And I think that's incumbent upon them to do it responsibly and actively and every single day. Doug Smith is the author of the forthcoming We the North, 25 Years of the Toronto Raptors. You can find his work at the Toronto Star and at Smith Raps on Twitter. Doug, Thanks for filling in for Blake. Oh, and, no, one can, uh, I can, no one can fill in for Blake. I'm glad just to <laughs> absolutely carry his water for a week. Uh, we appreciate you having, uh, you, you joining us and allowing Blake to, uh, I, I don't know. He's probably tapping my room right now to making sure everything, make sure everything goes okay. But you capably filled in. And, and for that, uh, we are very appreciative. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate having me.
Guys, uh, Blake will be back next week, we think, unless he uh, he escapes across the uh, across the border, which seems unlikely because he's as afraid of the coronavirus and the United States handling it as I am. So we will talk to you then. Thanks for listening. See ya.